Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Never give up, never give in, and never retreat. But the end point of that is clients come first, not glory. And Cicero's got a great quote. He says, the greater the difficulty, the greater the glory. So you're going to take difficult cases. You need to work real hard. I'll give you my quote. A second of inspiration in a trial does not equal four years of preparation. And now, your hosts, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Please rise. Court is now in session. This is the uh, Great Trials Podcast. I am your host, Steve Lowry. As always with me is uh, the always electric Yvonne Godfrey. (laughs) How are you doing? Yes, I'm trying. I'm I'm working hard here, Yvonne. I'm trying to come up with different words every time. (laughs) I like it. I'm I'm doing good. Speaking of electric, it's kind of related because my hair is super staticky and frizzy right now. So I've never been. I'm glad this is a podcast and not a TV show. I was going to say, even though I I can see you, but uh, and I think you look great. But uh, oh, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, but but this is a podcast, so nobody can see us, and it's a really good thing that they can't see me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Yvonne, I have got a question for you. Have you ever heard of Edward Bernays? Um, I want to know. No, I haven't. So Edward Bernays back in the uh, early 1900s was this, uh, uh, um, sort of the father of, of PR, the father of marketing. He actually wrote a book called Propaganda. And, um, and this was before, uh, I guess, you know, the Nazis used propaganda, so propaganda wasn't such a taboo word. Uh, but Edward Bernays sort of uh, was his father of all these marketing ideas that, um, uh, that we've, uh, you know, had over the years that have just come to be regular things for us. Like, for instance, the reason why we eat bacon uh, for breakfast in the morning was largely because of Edward Bernays. Um, well, back in the 1920s, uh, Lucky Strike, the cigarette manufacturer, didn't think enough women were smoking cigarettes. And so they hired Edward Bernays to uh, help them come up with a marketing campaign to get women to smoke cigarettes. And so Edward Bernays, you know, took the Lucky Strike um, cigarette package, which was a sort of bright green package. He contacted models, fashion designers, and had them start uh, using that color as their, the, that color of the year. So that if, if a uh, woman would look in a fashion magazine, all the dresses would be the same color as the Lucky Strike uh, package. He also um, started this whole campaign uh, where uh, smoking a cigarette was the equivalent of sort of freeing yourself from, uh, you know, the bounds of society and, and almost like a, a women's liberation uh, movement. And so he actually titled, uh, the Lucky Strike cigarettes, freedom torches, and uh, and they had at the Easter Day parade that year. They had um, a march where they had all these women smoking Lucky Strike cigarettes, and they called them freedom torches. And they were you know lighting up for freedom for uh, for women's independence. And uh, and their and actually I have it written down here. Their actual slogan uh, that they put in the magazines with Lucky Strike cigarettes was to keep a slender figure. No one can deny reach for a lucky strike instead of a sweet. <laughs> so that's sort of my, my lead into our guests that we're, that we're meeting uh, or talking with today. Uh, our guest today is Russ Herman. 
Russ is with the firm of Herman Herman and Katz down in New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, Russ has had uh, just a uh, monster career. Uh, and I'm going to go through some of the things uh, that you've accomplished in your career, Russ. And I know I'm not going to hit them all because, uh, because uh, this is only a one-hour podcast. So, um, but uh, Russ has uh, been, uh, started practicing law in 1966. And he was uh, named the outstanding trial lawyer by the Louisiana Trial Lawyers Association in 1977. Uh, he's been named in the best lawyers of America ever, every year since the uh, Nafith and Smith uh, publication has been out. Uh, Fortune magazine featured him uh, in their July 2000 issue. Uh, he's been the president of the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, which is now uh, the American Association of Justice. Uh, he received the Leonard M. Ring Champion of Justice Award, which is the highest honor that ATLA gives. Um, and he has received the Pursuit of Justice Award uh, by the American Bar Association. He's in the National Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame. And, uh, and he is actually the author and the performer of a six-volume series called Courtroom Persuasion, Art, Drama, and Science. Russ, it is uh, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Well... First of all, I uh, am pleased that uh, you asked because tobacco was one of the three or four most important matters uh, in, in, in my law life. Uh, I've always wanted the tough cases. I've wanted the cases that I felt could not only benefit my clients, but make a change uh, for the better. Uh, in uh, America and, and elsewhere. And it's ranged from uh, innovations were, that were acquired in hotel security, uh, pharmaceutical uh, defect dis disclosures, uh, uh, construction failures that can be avoided, but uh, big tobacco uh, and that uh, fight has really uh, changed the face of uh, smoking uh, in America and elsewhere. So thank you for, for inviting. No, th thank you so much for coming on. And, and this case that we're going to talk about was a truly groundbreaking case. Uh, the name of it was Scott versus American Tobacco. It was a class action trial uh, down in uh, Louisiana, in Orleans Parish, Louisiana. Uh, and Russ, I'm going to give a couple of facts, and if I've messed them up, please tell me. But it, um, this trial took place over two years. In fact, it took 18 months to pick a jury of 19, starting with 1,000 jurors. Um, and I think the, the litigation itself had started uh, a, almost nine years or eight years before the trial itself started. So we're talking uh, approximately... Uh, 11 to 12 years uh, on this case, and um, and uh, I'll I'll jump to the end uh, just quickly. It resulted in a 591 million dollar class action verdict on behalf of uh, the uh, people in Louisiana who were addicted to tobacco and funded a smoking uh, cessation program. I know that it went through a number of appeals, but that uh, cessation program uh, did get funded. Is that right, Russ? Yes, it, it was funded today. It's about $300 million and uh, more than uh, 100,000 uh, uh, Louisiana citizens have gotten free uh, 
tobacco, uh, cessation, uh, instructions, free patches, and other modalities to help them uh, quit smoking. And in Louisiana, overall, since the disclosures in this case, uh, the smoke rate of smoking uh, has declined by 17%, and among preteens, uh, over 30%. That's incredible. I mean, I having just reading the materials you sent us, just reading the the opening and closing statements, you know, I sort of thought, um, you know, when I was growing up in the in the 80s and the 90s, you know, the people obviously knew a lot more about tobacco then, but even even today, reading through this stuff, I learned stuff about big tobacco, about cigarettes, about marketing that I didn't even know. So I, I mean, the amount of information that, that you all uncovered and revealed to the public in this case is just incredible. Well, it, you know, it's it, <laughs> uh, hours of preparation and days and, and months of preparation uh, really paved the way uh, for lawyers to do a good job. It, uh, you do the right preparation, you do it long enough, you can then think out of the box on how you're going to potentially win a case. I, marketing became very interesting to me. Uh, the Marlboro Man, actually, uh, they, set, they set that theme in uh, Tobacco Did in movies. Uh, he became their print ad mogul and died uh, from cancer from smoking. Uh, African-American uh, uh, preteens were targeted uh, with the penguin from Cools. If you recall, it's a black and white penguin, mostly black, with a green border, and it's cool. K-O-O-L, which has a lot of connotations. Uh, women were targeted with Virginia Slims, which corresponds to the opening uh, uh, introduction. Um, but billions of dollars literally were spent on these marketing campaigns and were actually targeted uh, at 8 to 12-year-olds. And if if you don't start smoking by 18, age 18, you probably never will. So, Right, right. I saw the – Go. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Russ. No, no. I'm, I'm, I, I was through with that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, yes, some of the documents that we saw in the, in the materials you sent us, Russ, I mean, the, you know, we, a lot of the times, you know, cases that we as lawyers deal with are negligence uh, leading into, you know, maybe gross negligence and, and you make a claim for punitive damages. I mean – this wasn't negligent. This wasn't gross negligent. I mean, this was an intentional fraud by these companies to basically addict millions of people to their product that they knew was going to cause cancer. That's true. And, and they got paid large bonuses uh, based on the number of sales each year. Um, not profits, sales. Uh, it, it really is extraordinary. For example, at one point they reduced, Philip Morris reduced uh, the amount of nicotine. They never specified really how much, 
but they had discovered uh, that urea, uh, a urine uh, product from uh, animals, if they sprayed the tobacco with urea, urea causes a greater effect than the nicotine that they remove because the nicotine that's left speeds through the system extraordinarily rapidly to the same place where cocaine uh, is addictive. Mm. So there's a lot of deception. In fact, I think one of the embarrassments to me is that the whole campaign of deception and fraud was suggested, augmented uh, by law, law firms that uh, actually represented tobacco. Right. So, in, in, in uh, I found that actually nauseating. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, the uh, material we discovered. You know, they had been 50 years of trials without any recovery. Uh, we read every transcript of every trial, every deposition had been taken, analyzed it, and we got a couple of breaks during the case and got material that no one else had ever seen before, uh, which we've now circulated to uh, various lawyers who have tobacco cases. But a call came in uh, one night uh, to my home uh, from a lady named Hatsy Heap, and she said she had extraordinary documents. Uh, and I said, well, where'd you get my phone number? And she said she thought that Fred Friendly, uh, one of the uh, national uh, TV uh, broadcasters, uh, who was also a, a prominent lawyer, I said, well, where are these documents? He said, well, they're, they're uh, in Raleigh, Virginia, which was the seat of Philip Morris. I said, well, we'll I'll, I'll be up there at your home in the morning. Give me an address. Uh, and I called uh, one of the lawyers on our team. Uh, we got a private plane. I called uh, a lawyer friend. In Norfolk, I said, go down to Richmond, get the documents, uh, and uh, make arrangements to fly the, this witness to New Orleans in the morning. The, the bottom line is, one of the documents was by a scientist who took notes at a Philip Morris meeting, and the questions he was that were posed to him and the other scientists were... Um, how much nicotine do you have to have to addict a normal person? Well, that's startling. That document was in the 50s. Right. And uh, Philip Morris is on TV uh, in the 90s saying, no, nicotine uh, is not addictive. So a couple of, couple of interesting things happened in the case. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. 
Yes, and LTS Legal Technology Services are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. I mean, yeah. that that is so shocking. And I mean, one of the other things, and I don't know if this was this was related to kind of the deceptive marketing or what you all, you know, found in these documents or maybe a combination, but when I mentioned earlier learning stuff that I never knew when reading these, these um, opening statements and closing arguments was the whole, the thing about light cigarettes. I, I truly right. believed light, light cigarettes were, were quote unquote better for you up until like an hour ago. <laughs> well, they were more addictive actually than the non-light. That's crazy. The, well, uh, <laughs> The, the brands that were non-light, they were not uh, augmented in any way to produce uh, a quick uh, effect on the brain. <laughs> but light cigarettes, you could reduce uh, the amount of nicotine, call it a light cigarette, but, but produce something that was more addictive. So... Uh, and so is that what was happening? They were adding they were basically adding other chemicals to make so right. that the effect was more addictive. Yes. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. and, and even though, even though the FDA required them to list every thing that was in uh, their cigarettes, the amounts were never required to be listed. So, you know, they can list X, and th since there was no indication that X was a multiple, uh, neither the FDA nor anybody else. But, you know, when you've got 17 tobacco growing states uh, that control 34 votes in the Senate, um, and you've got so-called consumer like the CPSC and the FDA, et cetera, EPA is supposed to protect consumers. They're actually controlled by lobbyists, big business, and in this case, big tobacco. Mm. Yeah, so, um, well, Russ, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your trial strategy in this case, because, you know, uh, one of the things we, you know, like to tell our listeners is when you put together a, a you know, massive case like this, how you boil it down to some themes and, uh, you, you know, saw in your material, can you kind of give us your, when you're coming up to an opening, some of the techniques you used and some of the uh, themes you developed throughout the trial? Well, you want to, want to do two things in your opening. 
you want to have a theme that's unforgettable that can be repeated over and over again with evidence and experts. And you also, when you discover what the defendant tobacco company's success is, and any defendant, you want to reverse their theme before they can state it. Now, tobacco had won hundreds of cases uh, utilizing the theme uh, that it was common knowledge that tobacco was harmful, everybody knew what was in tobacco, et cetera. Personal responsibility, you've got to be responsible uh, for whatever you do, uh, et cetera. So uh, in opening, uh, we said there are many, many things that the tobacco companies knew about and put in tobacco that they have to have personal responsibility for, particularly those executives that are paid multi-million dollar bonuses. So there are many things that they say are common that you never knew about, but you will know when this trial uh, and the evidence is put on. Uh, secondly, they have to have personal responsibility. They claim that a 10-year-old that smokes is personally responsible. Right. Well, what about these executives that are telling lies, repeating lies, and making exorbitant sums of money out of folks who eventually have cancer, uh, particularly lung cancer, and it's the public that picks up, make, you know, we picks up the bill with Medicaid and Medicare. Where is their personal responsibility? At any rate, we isolated the three themes that they had used over and over and over again. Once we had done that, we could reverse it. But the big thing is, what are we going to do? We've got a nut, We've got five big tobacco brands here. Um, we've got multiple things we could argue, but how do we tie it together? And uh, I came up with a theme uh, that what this case is about is cats. Um, a conspiracy to addict teens and preteens. And the conspiracy is among these companies and two shell corporations they created to distort, hide, and reconfigure evidence. Addiction, and we will prove that they knew in the early 50s that tobacco, nicotine, which is a poison incidentally, was absolutely addictive. They knew it, but they lied about it and they hit it. And who are the targets? You're going to find that the targets actually began at age 9, 10, and 11. In fact, you're going to see a letter in which the president of a tobacco company wrote a third grade class in the 70s saying tobacco is not addictive and tobacco is not harmful. Um, when you go to support, when tobacco went to support its strategy to addict teens and preteens, 
it actually supported that strategy by attacking physicians, uh, by writing uh, and sending representatives to high schools, uh, to lie, etc. So, cats, when you go home, whenever this trial is over, and your neighbors ask you what your case was about, you can say it was about big tobacco and its conspiracy to addict teens and preteens. Now, how do you get there? You get there, first of all, you've got to really dig. Right. It's not easy to read through 50 trial transcripts and several hundred depositions and where tobacco has been successful and used the same theme over and over again. Then to work it into an opening and throughout a trial that reverses their theme, they, they really did have a problem uh, in their opening once we took away uh, a their spiritual uh, theme uh, to such an extent that they had to reorder. And our theme was remarkable because the evidence supported it. All you had to remember was there was a conspiracy to addict preteens and teens and uh, worked out. Yeah, yeah, apparently. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, I saw some of those documents that you that you all uncovered about, um, I mean, not only did they know that it would addict, um, uh, you know, that it was addictive, but in fact, they even wrote that if they took out the nicotine or if, it, if, if cigarettes somehow became not addictive, then, they, then all of their companies would go bankrupt and they could all go home and they'll stop getting paid the, the huge fees they want. I mean, so they, you know, put down on paper, uh, you know, not only that they knew it was addictive, but that they needed it to be addictive in order for their companies to keep making the billions of dollars that they, that they were. So, um, I mean, the, the evidence uh, that you had to support your theme was, uh, was uh, just overwhelming. Yeah, and related to that, Russ, how did you, I mean, you talk about um, the preparation you had to do, all the transcripts you read, all the depositions you read, in terms of just the volume of both that information and the, the, the volume of documents that you had, how did you approach, I mean, knowing you couldn't use everything, or, well, I'm assuming you couldn't use everything. How did you approach kind of deciding what you were going to use, how to, how to pick the documents you were going to use and, and sort of pare everything down? Well, first of all, I did read myself every trial transcript in the tobacco trial. Yeah. Um, but I divided a very talented trial team and assigned them specifics. Uh, you have R.J. Reynolds, uh, you have Philip Morris, you have uh, Laura Lott, you have the conspiracy, etc. Then uh, that team was assigned, you, you go to the mass of information, it's pretty well separated because you can run a computer on Marlboro schools or camels or whatever, if that's, you know, if that's your assignment. And you pick out what you think are the most devastating documents on each issue, conspiracy, uh, addiction, uh, hiding the truth, uh, advertising, whatever it is for your brand. 
And that, that took the course of maybe a year and a half, two years of preparation. And we'd have weekly trial meetings. And then we'd all look at what each lawyer, lead lawyer and the trial team or their second chair thought was the most uh, damning documents that they had found. Uh, and then we had to figure out a way to get them in evidence. But we, we narrowed it down. We had, when we started, we had sev several millions of documents and transcripts. Um, but eventually, I think we, I would have liked to have just 30, but I thought that we did a pretty good job getting to 300 to 500 uh, documents. And then we had to decide of those, which ones can we get into evidence and how we're going to get them in evidence and how they dovetail with everybody else's uh, uh, assignment. Right. So that, uh, and that was, you know, in the end, that was the toughest part. But, I, I, you know, when you've got a trial team of five firms with extraordinary lawyers dedicated to a single, uh, with a single purpose, um, it, it, it's an extraordinary feeling to be in a group like that, learn from each other. Uh, and uh, I was very lucky. Uh, they allowed me to take the lead and there was a a difference of opinion uh, among lawyers uh, they accepted that I would resolve it we just go with the way that I resolved it and I, I'll give you an example Mike Gertler great lawyer he had a uh, cools um, he found a document that showed that African-Americans were specifically targeted in Cool's advertising, not only because of the word and the penguin, but because it was a, it had a, a taste to it that was advertised to give you good breath. And they had studies of how these various factors would play to African-Americans. And the documents, there were only three or four documents, but I mean, they were horrible. Right. And we were faced with uh, demographics of potential jurors, uh, African-American, African white, Hispanic, can you really put that on without stirring some some resentment? Mm. And a lot of debate about that. And uh, finally, I said, nah, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put the demographics of how many cool smokers they are, uh, are there, uh, but we're not going to get into uh, targeting blacks. We're going to let the jury figure that out. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, but, you know, you, when you meet as a group once a week, and we did, I don't know, we had 40 focus groups. We had 20 mock trials, et cetera. 
you just have to discard some of your best stuff in order to say, look, can we get in evidence? If we get in evidence, what's the effect going to be? And is this really better than other evidence? So, right, right. Well, and I, I mean, clear, it does. I mean, clearly, you all struck the right balance. But I think looking at it from, it it seems, I mean, the 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 volume of of information that you had just seems overwhelming. But you've done a great job of kind of. Um, you know, explaining to us how important it is to have a good team and, and to trust each other and work together. And it's just really amazing. Well, I think the the most exciting thing to me in a way is that my son, Stephen, who is a great lawyer and who was selected by the federal court to co-lead the assault on BP, and they've recovered now something like $20 billion, he sat with me. And I wouldn't let him do any other work other than tobacco. I said, son, you're going to have the greatest lawyers in the country opposing this. You're going to have the finest lawyers that we have available opposing big tobacco. And you will learn more in one case than you learned in all your years in law school, et cetera, et cetera. I can tell you, he is a brighter, better and more efficient lawyer than I am. And there's nothing that can make a father prouder. Now, Walter Leger, uh, Jr., a good friend of mine, a great lawyer. Uh, we handled a number of large cases together. Um, his son sat in that courtroom even when he was in law school. Uh, yeah. Mike Gertler, uh, son, Lewis great lawyer, Steve Murray's son, Steve Murray Jr. Uh, so we had generations in that courtroom who were young, who were brilliant, who were aggressive. And if we lost, I felt certain that they would carry on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always, uh, great to win, but we had great class reps, both of whom eventually died from cigarette-related diseases. Uh, Gloria Scott died during trial before a verdict, after she had testified. Uh Uh, Dina Williams died uh, ultimately while a case was on appeal. I think there were 30 appeals. So, you know, the byproduct uh, means a great deal to me. I'll tell you, when you lose it, you get scarred forever. Oh, yeah. When you win, generally there's a momentary exaltation. It doesn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but when you feel like you've done something really worthwhile, that lasts. Yeah, I, I find that what, you know, after you come out of a trial, and I can't imagine coming out of an over two-year trial, uh, like you all did, but when you come out of trial with the, even when you've won, you kind of get back to your office and you kind of just sit and look at everything and kind of say, you know, well, what's next? I mean, cause it's uh, coming down off of that sort of adrenaline rush of being in the courtroom every day back to, uh, the grind of being in your office can be a, be a tough transition. Um, I, I, I almost taught, you know, I almost chose another case for you to talk to me about <laughs> that really has scarred me. <laughs> we lost the case uh, 20, 20 uh, 
American heroes who were on the Bataan death march and their survivors who were sold uh, by Japan, uh, transported in slave ships and sold on the auction block to Mitsui, Mitsubishi, et cetera. Really proud of the case we lost. So well, Russ, anyway. Russ, I got it. Uh, I, so I, I didn't. I didn't mention this, Russ, but uh, and it's been so long ago. I doubt you remember me. I had a whole lot different. Uh, I looked different. I didn't have a beard, and I, I had hair back then. But I actually worked with you on that case when I was a brand new, out of the box lawyer with you and uh, Jim Kitchens and your brother Maury. And uh, I, I remember having such a fantastic time on that case. And and one of the jobs you gave me on that uh, was to actually go out and meet with the survivors who had been on that uh, death march and interview them. And uh, that was just one of the uh, you know greatest things that a young lawyer could do is just go out and meet all these heroes and just hear their stories. Um, that was, well, that was well, me, one of my great experiences. Let me, well, let me tell you about Justice James Kitchens of the Mississippi <laughs> Supreme Court. Uh, he and his wife and uh, Sandra and I just finished a joint vacation together uh, in Italy. He is, he's a great dissenter <laughs> on the Mississippi Supreme Court. He's, That's right. He's a wonderful guy. Well, I'm glad you said that to me. Yeah. And I make no. a note of it. I'll let you know. <laughs> well, we should well, do, um, we, I feel like we should do a, uh, uh, maybe Russ, if you, if you're not too sick of us when we're, when we're done talking about uh, your tobacco case, we could do a, we do a follow-up episode some other time on um, on the case that uh, Steve the Steve helped you on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we would well, love to do that. Well, I I'd be happy to do it. And one of the reasons is I think there's a lot made over lawyers' wins uh, today. How much money somebody you know if lawyer out there he takes a soft tissue case in his state. Uh, maybe only worth fifty thousand, and he, he recovers a hundred thousand for a client. You know that's that's a lot more success for me than a lawyer that advertises that he had a million dollar result, and actually the case was worth three million. So, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Well, and and Steve and I were always saying how um, you know you end up. The, the stuff that you either really can't forget or that you really learn from is when, you know, are the losses or when you didn't get something right. But um, we also knew that most people wouldn't want to come, <laughs> come on our <laughs> podcast and relive that. So, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, uh, you know, this is the great trials podcast. So we're, we're talking about, you know, great uh, cases that have had great results, but I, I uh, actually love hearing uh, stories of what didn't work in the courtroom or what didn't work out the way, you know, we thought it did and, you know, and what we learned from that. But, they, but Yvonne is exactly right. I mean, that is a lot harder to get people to, uh, to come and talk about. <laughs> well, I don't mind talking about it. I'm a great <laughs> believer. I write down everything I did wrong in a case and I already have, I always have or how I could win. How would I try this case differently? Uh, for instance, I think that to kill a mockingbird is a terrible teaching <laughs> right. element and he <laughs> lost he didn't try the case right he didn't look for another avenue and uh, i actually know how i could have won that case <laughs> so at any well, rate i'm not the horrible thing you know what i think would be fun russ is we should do a mock trial sometime where we put the same facts together and then we uh we, we go try it again 
I, I, I'd love to do that. Anyway, <laughs> I'm 76. <laughs> I'm in good health. I'm uh, still trying cases. Well, let's let's get back to Scott versus American Tobacco because uh, there is so much to cover on this, and and I I do want to do that. Um, you know, one of the things when you were talking about putting your themes together for the case um, that I noticed, and it's something that, that we we talk about in in our trials too, but I, that I really loved is that when you started your opening statement, you uh, you talked about this you know issue of choice and whether or not it's a choice um, to smoke and then to continue smoking. And, um, and what you said was, is that, uh, yes, our clients chose to, to smoke and that was their mistake and they're paying with, you know, for that mistake with their lives, you know, but what the, you know, tobacco companies did was to make sure that they got addicted and to make sure they couldn't quit. So there was no choice, but that, you know, whole concept of accepting responsibility, uh, right at the beginning of the case to just sort of take away any thunder that the other side has. And then, and then, like you said, turn that theme, uh, on the, uh, on the defense, I thought, uh, was just, uh, fantastic work. Um, was it a, a hard decision to, to get up there and, and, you know, admit that your clients, uh, had made a mistake in choosing to smoke? No, not really. I mean, I had a great mentor. My, my dad, Harry Herman was, a terrific trial lawyer and human being. And he, the three rules he gave his sons, never lie to the judge, never lie to the jury, never lie to the client, never lie to the adversary. Now there are things protected, strategies protected, but never lie or mislead. And uh, as a result, we sort of lived our lives, our adult lives, and our law practices come right out, you know, whatever it is. Uh, in our firm, you have to list the weaknesses in your case and then list how you're going to handle them. So sort of natural. I, I didn't find it difficult at all. I knew we had to take it away from them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I love that. I, I love that uh, saying that your father had, um, and it's, it's funny, maybe that, uh, you know, that's some, one of the things that we definitely preach to our, uh, associates here. And, uh, and, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I'm glad I got to start my career working with lawyers like you in justice kitchens. Um, but, uh, I also want to read one other quote that you, uh, said that your dad, you say, cause I'm, I'm going to start, uh, making sure that all of my, uh, lawyers here, um, know this quote was that once you're on a case, be like a dog on a bone. That's, that's just a great, uh, great quote, how you don't that's give up. It. Never give up, never give in, and never retreat. But the, the end point of that is clients come first, not glory. And Cicero's got a great quote. He says, the greater the difficulty, the greater the glory. So you're going to take difficult cases. You, you, you need to work real hard. I, right. <laughs> I, I'll give you my quote. My quote is, a second of inspiration in a, in a trial does not equal four years of preparation. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Pers perspiration will, will always uh, uh, overcome uh, 
inspiration. I like that. Yeah, that is, that's great. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Well, um, so Russ, let's talk about a couple of the other things in trial. And one of the things that uh, that um, that I know you had to go through, and you know, and you, you've already covered it some, but um, you know, this—I uh, mean, tobacco companies had been sued for fifty years. I think uh, you said that the first case was back in the nineteen fifties, and they and they had pretty much won every single case. Um, and so, it, and then, you know, knowing that they were going to make this argument of, uh, that, you know, Hey, it's common knowledge that cigarettes are dangerous, uh, despite what they've been telling everybody for the last, you know, 50 to a hundred years, how in, in your, in picking the jury and I know going through 18 months of, of broad ear, uh, is, is not easy. Uh, tell us what you were looking for in your jury, what themes you were using in, in that and, and, um, how you were, how you were, um finding the jurors to strike and how that all worked? Well, we, we always look for two things. Every case, I don't care what's at stake. Who are the leaders on a potential jury? And who are those that are well-disposed to justice, to doing the right thing for the right reason. Now, it sounds simple, right? but uh, let me give you a step-by-step. The greatest jury metric individual I've ever worked with, and I've worked with him in three or four major cases, the first was sometime in the 70s. The fellow by the name of Alan Rosenzweig, who has a PhD uh, from UNO, and who got his start in surveys of, of voter attitudes, and then became so accurate that lawyers began to use him. And I was 
I don't know if whether I was first or second, but I was an early advocate once he did what I call a jury metric survey. Because he's neutral, his questions aren't looking for a particular result. They're neutral questions. And then he has the ability to do the logarithms, uh, cross checks, et cetera, uh, on a 50-60 jury metric survey. And if you got the money, you want them out in the field doing it with well-trained people that he supervised face-to-face. And then you do some focus groups, you get your lawyers together, instinctive feelings, you're going to look at the venue where the case is being tried, where are those jurors being picked from, what are the demographics, et cetera, et cetera, and what have been the jury results and you have to do that over time. So you graduate from all of that to, uh, uh, incidentally, there are three lawyers, Steve Herman in our firm, Howard Twiggs, great lawyer from North Carolina who's no longer with us, uh, and Jack Showers, a lawyer from Lafayette, have all been able to do focus groups successfully with under five or six hundred bucks. Wow. Wow, yeah. And in our case, our focus groups cost us six figures. Mock trials cost us hmm, seven figures. I don't want to get into the details, but <laughs> uh, uh, the take that jury metric survey and those focus groups, et cetera, and now your case is going to be set for trial. And what you want is a uh, jury voir dire survey. It, it comes under many names. I think ours was 120 to 130 questions with multiple subparts. And you go back and forth, you debate it, judge is the ultimate decider. Uh, but it, it's the type of questionnaire that goes to ju- prospective jurors that can be extraordinarily revealing. And we could have spent another seven figures during doing jury backgrounds on the thousands of prospective jurors, but we didn't do any. And we didn't because our questionnaire was so good and Alan Rosenzweig was so talented that we knew out of a thousand individuals who were going to be called, who were the leaders, who were the smokers, who were pro-tobacco, who was uh, pro-corporate, et cetera, and who were going to give us a, a fair opportunity. So we went into Vardia. Vardia has always been fun to me. Right. I know a lot of lawyers did, but I love it. And uh, uh, so all of that prep goes in, and then various lawyers on your team are assigned to, if the name of X comes up, that's yours. Uh, and I had the ultimate decision, though, because 
sometimes these jurors look like maybe you want them. And you have to keep your eye on the ball. I mean, in selecting 19 jurors out of 1,000, 12 and 7 alternates, um, you really need to be very, very careful of who you strike, when you strike, what's coming up that maybe the defendants don't know uh, is a good juror for them, and then voir dire as if that juror is very good for you, so they strike so you don't have to. So voir dire is fun. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I love juror uh, questionnaires, and we've used them in, in cases, but sometimes I've run into a few judges, and I guess it all depends on your judge, that they want you to move so quickly, you know, once you get them, your juror questionnaire filled out and then, you know, get your voir dire done, that uh, they don't want to give you any chance to look at them, which can make it difficult. So sometimes I've found that, and especially when you've got a judge who's just real moving fast and strict on, the, uh, on your time limits, uh, that sometimes questionnaires can be a little bit too cumbersome for those types of judges. But I mean, I, I love the information you get out of them. Um, well, you know, you, you need to look at it. I have very few criticisms. I never make excuses that judge is bad or the jurors are bad or the lawyers deceitful. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's not helpful. Right. But, uh, Federal judges in the last 30 years have moved to more lawyer idea. I'm going to tell you the biggest criticism of the federal judges is most of them have never tried a significant case. Yeah. They have very, very little trial experience first jail. And appellate judges, you can go around the circuits and the U.S. Supreme Court and you will find they, many of them have had very little trial experience, and therefore, they're making decisions, for example, on Wadia and speed uh, in a case, not based on experience, but based on hearsay, some article they read, some discussions in judicial conferences. Uh, right. Uh, we've been lucky in the Eastern District. We've got really good federal judges. The, the vast majority of them have been significant, have done significant work as trial judges, either plaintiff, defendant, or otherwise. I uh, originally started, I'd, I'd ask for juror idea. I'd ask for uh, the court uh, to allow uh, questionnaires. Uh, I asked a multiple things and the judge was mostly denying, but it's okay. I want a few of them in federal court. Right. <laughs> but but I, the thing that was really telling on when I was, when I did a, when I, I, I was successful with, with that sort of idea is, uh, Your Honor, I watched a federal trial in your court two weeks ago, and you allowed lawyer of idea for hours. Now, why should someone who you can, who, who you agreed to convict on a, on a, on a dope charge, why should his lawyer get more of idea uh, than I get? 
Right. I got right. the same burden of proof, and at least my clients lose some. Um, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes that works. <laughs> I like yeah, that. Yeah, I do too. So uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you talked about the, uh, in voir dire, that sometimes you find a, a juror that you think is not going to be so favorable for you. And so you'd question him in a way, him or her in a way that uh, might lead the defense to strike him. Can you give us an example of that? Cause I think that's, that's great. I, you know, I, I've never, uh, I've never pulled that off myself. Well, uh, I'm trying to, I'm, let, me, let me give you an example of voir dire where your best potential juror is certain to be struck. Okay. So I got up, I, I examined a juror. I could tell I had a great rapport with this African-American woman and we were having a good old time together. There was no question they were going to strike her even before I did voir dire. But I was able to structure the voir dire to educate the rest of the jury. Well, how much did you know about what, what was in that tobacco cigarette before your husband died of cancer? That sort of question. And it's just, well, seems like a reasonable question to me. One of the things the defense has wanted to know is who in your family uh, suffered a tobacco, a, a, a death or an injury, which you, which the prospective juror attributes to tobacco. And I, we got on fine. I had 70, 80 questions. <laughs> Time was flying. The judge enjoyed it. But all the other jurors <laughs> that were in the room got an education. Mm -hmm. And I said, it, it, I said, well, I want to thank you, uh, I always use the real name. I don't remember a name. I probably should. Miss Lucinda Williams, I thank you. I want you to be as truthful and as helpful to Mr. Whitman over there as you have been to me. And I love this defense lawyer, a great lawyer. But he had a lawyer from Jones Day in Cleveland that was going to examine that witness. He stood up and said, no, I... So-and-so is going to examine that witness. The first thing out of that lawyer's mouth was, Miss Lucinda Williams, if I stand up here and question you for five minutes or five hours, are you going to feel as good about me as you do about Mr. Herman? And she said, <laughs> good about you? I don't like anybody on your side of the table. And I like Mr. Herman. So, <laughs> You know, so you use the juror to educate the juror, the prospective jury, even though you know a juror is going to get struck. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a really bad juror who was a distant relative. I'll give you the other example. I questioned her about, do you remember me? Oh, yes. I said, were you at, at my son's bar mitzvah? Yeah. Were you at my daughter's bar mitzvah? Were you at both of my daughter's bar mitzvah? Um, you remember having a Passover dinner at my brother Fred's house? Oh, I, I see Freddie quite often. Um, I went through a whole series of family relationship. And let me tell you, she was a bad juror. 
She was the lowest ranked juror that we had on our questionnaire. She had a number one for leadership, I mean a number 10 for leadership, and a number one uh, as, as a, as a uh, prejudiced, mean person. I don't know how else to say it. And I'm not going to give <laughs> right. you her name. Right, right. They struck her. <laughs> oh, that's... So, uh, I was lucky, though. I mean, you know, every <laughs> once in a while you get lucky. Uh, if he hadn't been a relative, I, a distant relative, I wouldn't know what to do with him. I would have used, yeah. used a strike, you know. <laughs> so, Russ, one thing but, that I was... Yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I, I don't have anything more to say. <laughs> one thing I was... Wonder when you when you're trying a case that that lasts uh, over uh, two years, and I should have said at the beginning that this was this case was tried in two phases. Uh, that the liability phase was first, uh, and then after they uh, found in your favor on liability, then you came back and argued uh, or uh, tried well, the case they, on the damages. Uh, well, they took a bunch of appeals, right. <laughs> and then we got back, you know, to and liability. Did, and did you have the? Did you have the same jury for both phases? And uh, I mean, you know, one of the questions Ivana had when we were talking about it was just how do you keep them together for that long? Well, that you got to entertain them for damn sure. <laughs> uh, and and uh, they, you know, when they're there for that long, they want to come back. Right. They're very well invested uh, in the case in the sense of they've dedicated a year or so of their lives, or first phase, whatever it took. Um, but it's a good thing we had 19 jurors. We lost three in the second phase. And, uh, uh, but you, you know, if you can't keep their interest and entertain them uh, and have them really, I mean, what does it take? for jurors the last nine or 10 weeks and still be interested. Well, I mean, they're interested in their verdict. I'll tell you that. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's a great point. I mean, they are invested by that point and now they, they want to be part of this, uh, part, part of what's going on. So tell us, I mean, you know, you know, we always work to, to, you know, start the day strong in the day strong, you know, keep your, you know, keep the people engaged, interested, but tell us some of the, some of, uh, you know, the ways that over a two year period, you're able to keep this juror, you know, jury entertained and, and, um, and invested in the case. Well, every phase is as important as every other phase. I know that it's opening, it's opening, closing, closing. Every phase is extraordinarily important. Now, I, I can give you a couple of examples. There is a professional prostitute, Viscusi, B-I-S-C-U-S-I, who's got a PhD that originally was hired by the oil companies to convert all workers' comp law to, and tort law to a scheduled loss. Everybody's left arm 
from the shoulder down was worth 200,000. I'm making the figure up, but which was outrageous. Right. Somewhere along the line, he started being hired by the tobacco companies for their purpose. Great lawyer, my buddy Jack Bailey Jr. Uh, from Shreveport, who gave up really his practice to come down to New Orleans, who worked with my son, Steve, and he can do anything. He's so wonderful, this lawyer. I've tried three or four cases with him, and he's like Kitsch. If he's Kitsch, uh, Jack Bailey said, you got to go to Omaha. We got a case here. You got to be in it. I wouldn't even ask what the case was about. I just, you know. I'm there. But <laughs> right, Jack right. Bailey Jack Bailey had the hardest assignment. Jack, go find out everything that Viscusi ever wrote or gave a speech on or gave testimony. And I'll cut it short. After 12, 14 months of investigation, he found that Viscusi had written a book requested by the oil companies and adopted by Big Tobacco. And lo and behold, no library in the country had it. And it didn't show up on any CV. It's gotta be a reason for it. Because so far, we don't have very much on this so-called economist. Jack found the only edition. It was in a university library. Um, so the cross went something like, you write this book? Uh, what book? This book. How'd you get that book? <laughs> well, it, it was at the Rutgers University uh, library. How'd it get there? So, well, did you write this book? <laughs> look at the jury. Say yes or no. I didn't write it. We got to get on. We're wasting <laughs> our time. <laughs> showing the book. Here's the book. Does it have your name in it? Yeah. Does it have a publication date? Yes. Uh, how many pages is it? Here, here's a yellow marker. Go through every page and tell me what words in that book you didn't write. <laughs> because he couldn't answer. The judge says, well, do you, would you like a recess for an hour or two to read your own book? <laughs> now the jury really got an attention. No, I wrote every word. I said, look at page 95. Read paragraph one about jurors. Look at the jury. Quote, every time I've been in a jury trial, the jurors never understand anything. Their eyes are glazed over. Oh, ouch. Look look at that jury and tell me which of those jurors (laughs) have glazed over eyes that don't understand then, but the killer was, uh, he, 
he had this stupid paragraph that uh, statistically tobacco kills 400,000 people a year. And that has great benefit because it means that the government doesn't have to pay bigger social security payments. Oh my God. And, and, uh, pension plans and corporations save a lot of money. So economically, the loss of life is outdone by the savings. Oh my so, gosh. Wow. <laughs> now, and my buddy Jack, he is just, I, I, it's a good thing he doesn't pee in his pants because he would have. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also not something that you disclose to the rest of your trial team. You cannot afford to have this leak, in, you know, so to speak, and, you know, in any way. Right. At, at, at any rate, I, I drew it out, and then it was the end of the, you know, this, this cross only lasted about 50 minutes. And I, and I said, I, I ended with the first paragraph of his written report. And I looked at the judge. I said, Judge, I uh, got a written report to cross on here. Uh, I have some deposition excerpts where this gentleman under oath seems to have forgotten what he wrote um, or something like that. Judge says, well, let's end. Bring, I want you back in that chair tomorrow. And the jurors are shaking their heads. And... I knew he was destroyed no matter what. And oh, yeah. uh, so I go back to the trial team office across the street from the courthouse. And we generally work till 11 every night, uh, not just preparing the next day, but the day after that and refining, depending upon what happened. <laughs> And the next morning, uh, the judge said he wanted to see counsel uh, at the bench before the jury came in. Some jurors had written notes saying, do we really have to hear this guy again? <laughs> <laughs> I, so I turned to Phil Whitman, who was the captain of the other team. I said, Phil, I don't care. You want to put your witness on? <laughs> oh God! So I mean, oh, it, you know, uh, uh, it's again perspiration, preparation, never giving up, uh, thinking out of the box. And you ask, does that keep a jury's a juror's attention? Yeah. So yeah. I I will guarantee you, in every aspect of trial and particularly direct examination of our experts. Uh, we kept them very, very interesting. So, well, a good yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's great. I love that cross. I, I, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about this from the defense side of, you know, like who, who is the guy who prepared that expert who, you know, either didn't know that he had written that or, uh, thought that was never going to come out and just, uh, I, you know, what kind of egg on well, his face? I, yeah. I don't know, but I have to tell you, I don't think he ever disclosed that. 
Uh, I mean, for the yeah, for the defense lawyers, sure saying I Jack found it. Well, there was some incidental false title in a CV, or it was in the CV. I I don't know. The other books he was crossed on. There were other books came out of uh, actually came out of uh, either Jones Day or Shukarty's library. And they had Shukarty, Shukarty, they had Shukarty stamps all over. So, right. I don't know. You know, I just know that if you work hard and you don't give up and you're always looking for a way to win and you're self-critical of the mistakes you made and you don't blame them on anybody else, you're all right practicing. Yeah. Yeah. Got to have some pretty good case selection, but. I've never had it. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, I, I did want to ask you a couple more questions, Russ, and I, I know we're getting towards the end of our time. The, you know, I was thinking about this case, and I, you know, after reading your openings and closings and, and seeing just you know, all the you know, just smoking gun documents you had, and then you know, on top of that, this, um, uh, you know, not only did, did they have these documents that you guys found that – you know, absolutely showed that, that they knew that it was addictive, that they were trying to addict, you know, kids. Um, but they had also destroyed just a ton of evidence, uh, even shipping it off to Cologne, France. And then, you know, one, one particularly interesting story was a, a doctor that they had hired to test the addictiveness of tar or the, whether or not tar would cause cancer and, and the addictiveness of nicotine. And when he came back and said, yes, it does all that, they basically went down and destroyed oh, this guy's laboratory. He's got the right name. His name is DeNoble, D-small-E, capital N-O-B-L-E. And to this day, he still goes around the country lecturing uh, to very much in demand in high schools. Uh, he brings his whole thing. But he was a great witness, a great witness. And uh, they brought him in. He was a PhD, I think, in chemistry. They flew a special jet out. They brought him back to Raleigh. They wined and dined and paid him a lot of money to come do white mice experiments. They call, he said his experiment's done. He has a result. They flew in all the execs and all the scientists in the Raleigh. He told them. He went in the next day. They had killed his white mice. Oh. He killed them. The lab was disassembled. Uh, and um, great guy. Great guy. And, and what they did after that was try to destroy his reputation so that if he ever testified a lawyer would be reluctant to call him as a witness. Mm. And we finally made the decision. I don't know why this guy hasn't been called in these other trials by lawyers, but we're going to call him. I mean, yeah. he, he, he was not only believable, but you talk about a jury that enjoys him. When he talked about he, he, the white mice starting off with a little bit of nicotine, and they'd hit up like that, slapping your hand. They'd get a little lever for more. 
But by the end of his experiment, they were going. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and he did the whole demonstration in, uh, in the trunk. Wow. So, so that, so, you know, knowing that, I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, was there anything that the defense did that you thought, you know, hey, that was really good or that, that you thought was effective or that they had a, a defense that you had trouble overcoming because and, and, you had such great evidence? And related to that, I'm, I'm curious if they really said, because you mentioned this and I can't remember if it was maybe in your closing that, or somebody did, that they, the comparison of cigarettes to Twinkies, did right. that really and, happen? And hamburgers, yeah. <laughs> I was in a, no, it was in a letter that one of the executives, oh. uh, <laughs> but you know, the, I'm sure they did a great deal. It, let me tell you, they were great lawyers. Mm -hmm. They, they had tried these cases over and over and over again. I think our organization of the case theme wise, and the amount of evidence, really good evidence we had that they, they had not been faced with before. Uh, but let me tell you, they did a great job. Yeah. I mean, we asked for a billion, over a billion dollars. They got a, a $590 million verdict. We did not get medical monitoring, which would have been another 10 uh, uh, billion. Um, so, no slam dunks here. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I don't know a single thing that threw us other than an expert in damages on, on uh, medical monitoring who was absolutely wrong and a great expert and a great scientist who was proven wrong 10 years after the trial was over. So uh, sometimes, you know, lawyers that, that plaintiff lawyers in particular, that do their homework and think out of the box, generally are way ahead of, of medicine. Uh, right. I'm, you know, time and again, you know, it's, I call it the Semmelweis factor. The physician in Germany where all the children were getting diseases and dying, and he said, we got to wash our hands. That, that, you know, that's what's causing this. Diseases are being transmitted. They throw him out of the clinic. So, poor Semmelweis. He was right, but it took about 20 years for doctors to understand he was right. Yeah. Right. But, but you know, we, we come in uh, and we say, based on empirical evidence, uh, with experts, who we have shown the evidence to that talcum powder causes ovarian cancer in women. We're way ahead on that. Of course, Johnson and Johnson probably hit two or three discussions about it. Yeah. So, but no, I have great respect for defense lawyers. Without great defense lawyers, there are no great trial lawyers. For that's plaintiffs. true. I mean, and that, that's the reason that our system works. Give us a free press and jury trial. Things will work out. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> 
So uh, uh, one last thing, Russ, and we'll let you go. And, and you've been so generous with your time. Uh, but so the way you tried this case uh, is that you uh, is a real team effort, as you've already said. But I'm wondering the way you split up your openings between uh, several lawyers and split up your closings. Was that something? Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the result speaks for itself. But uh, but was that something that you found workable, or is it, it you know did it have problems? No, Sure, it was workable. I knew it was workable from the beginning. I'm not big on humility when I'm right. <laughs> I'm not big on humility when I'm wrong. <laughs> but but uh, no, I knew it would work if if uh, Mike Gertler, for example, uh, had his closing, which was primarily evidence against. Uh, well, you know what. I better use somebody else because I don't remember what what he was assigned to. <laughs> which 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 uh, tobacco company, uh, Brown and Williamson. So he had evidence of, against Brown and Williamson as long as he marshaled that evidence into the theme conspiracy to addict teens and preteens was consistent all the way through. So yeah. who can? Uh, you know, who are you going to pick? You're going to pick Mike Gertley. He knows more about Brown and Williamson than Brown and Williamson does. It's a question of utilizing the evidence to support a theme. So, no, I, I didn't find that difficult. All right. Well, uh, Russ, it's been such a, an honor and a pleasure to uh, to have you on the show, and uh, and I do hope we can do a, a schedule another one where we speak about the uh, the Japanese POW cases that uh, that you and I had a, a chance to work on together, yeah. even for a short time. Well, I do. I, I, I'll make time for that, and maybe if I get some time in the next twelve months, I'll talk to you about the honeymoon death trap case that uh, change the way hotels uh, utilize security methods. Oh, I've, I've got to hear that one. Yeah. yeah. yeah All right. Good. Talk to you later, guys. Th Bye -bye. Thank you so much, Russ. And uh, we have had uh, Russ Herman from Herman Herman Katz on, uh, from New Orleans, Louisiana, on the line. And um, if you want to look up uh, Russ, you can go on to our website at greattrialspodcast.com or to Russ's website at www.hhklawfirm.com. Uh, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, 
or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.